0: Hi everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. This
1: is the system, and it's not Putin's system. This is a system that has been there for the past century. Until that system is broken, you will see more leaders like Stalin and Putin and Brezhnev and others be
0: installed. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Olga Loudman, a researcher and analyst who has been monitoring Russian and Ukrainian internal politics for years. She's a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and the co-host of The Kremlin File, a podcast that details the rise of Putin and the spread of authoritarianism across the globe. We had Olga on the show in March when the war in Ukraine had just begun and I've brought her back to talk about how the war has progressed and to hear what she thinks about the rise of authoritarianism here in the U.S. Olga, welcome back to Burn the Boats. Thank you so much for having me back. So we're talking as winter is setting in in Ukraine or has set in. It's a brutal one. A few months ago, Ukraine launched a massive counteroffensive before the snow came. It was hugely successful. But where do things stand now? Can you give us a quick update?
1: Well, right now, Ukrainians are continuing their counter-offensive. It obviously has slowed because the weather is not exactly the most idle for a counter-offensive. I think we will see more progress in the next few weeks as the ground freezes and it's easier for military equipment to move versus being stuck in mud right now. The Russians, obviously, we've seen what they have shown us. You know, their military is more like a wreck tag group of, like, (laughs) terrorist bandits. They have zero logistics, zero organization. But what is the most frightening right now is that Russia is losing on the military um, field and have now strategically turned into, you know, to terrorizing Ukrainian people and specifically targeting critical infrastructure, leaving Ukrainians without heat power, water, electricity, you know, and everything that you need in the middle of winter as the temperature is plunging.
0: You'll be traveling back to Ukraine in in a month or so. What is your assessment of how successful they have been and are likely to be in either countering those attacks or getting that infrastructure back online quickly?
1: Well, I mean, they've been doing a, a remarkable job trying to, you know, get the infrastructure back online within days after Russia strikes um the power plants. The problem is that the world needs to help and, you know, provide. I know that Europe and U.S. have been sending generators, but they need to send more because, I mean, can you imagine, you, s- you know how Kyiv is. You have, you know, uh, apartment buildings where you have multiple flights of stairs. I mean, there are so many elderly people who have to, you know, climb upstairs with no power. You know, the elevators are down, obviously. And I mean, and then what's happening with, you know, the hospital situation? So, Ukraine right now needs generators because Russia is not going to stop. I mean, they see this is working, they're trying to break. The will of the people, which will never happen, because like I told you in March, and I'll remind you again, and that this, uh, you know, is like a, now a century old, centuries old war. And uh, we saw the last genocide by Stalin against Ukrainians, you know, in the late 30s. So Ukrainians will fight, they will not, you know, turn against their government or their country because of electricity, but Russians at the same time are seeing, you know, the effect it's having that, you know, they could have maximum damage by targeting civilians and, you know, attempting to freeze them to death and they will continue, you know, increasing their attacks.
0: The West has begun to step up in terms of providing generators and fuel and that kind of thing. But what about defensive systems? What do you make of the, the decision to provide advanced anti-air systems like the Patriot? We've talked about this before, but share your thoughts with this audience on the, the dangers of escalation versus the obligation to support Ukraine in its own defense.
1: Well, I mean, the dangers of escalation is if we don't provide the weapons, because we all know that Russia, you know, has made it very clear that Ukraine is just, you know, their next stop and that, I mean, their current stop, and that they have their sights set on restoring, you know, their version of the Soviet Union. We saw how uh, Russia, you know, softly annexed Belarus, and right now Lukashenko is basically uh, you know, pondering to Putin and cannot exist in power without Putin. And that what did they do the minute they softly annex it? You know, Ukrainians already for months are worried that there's gonna be an offensive coming from Belarusian borders. So if Ukraine falls, you know, we will see such chaos in Europe. We will see World War Three that, you know, Russia likes to spread really break out in Europe. If Russia is not stopped in Ukraine and even in the midst of this counteroffensive, you see Russia still hasn't slowed down. And you saw, you know, this German coup plot by a noble for a prince who, um, you know, wanted to overthrow the German government and and basically cause an insurrection, overthrow the government and, and install, you know, his version of, uh, I don't know, whatever kind of a uh, government that they were planning on. And they met with the Russians in the the Russian consulate in Germany. So, I mean, Russia is still interfering in affairs. And I mean, that sounds extremely familiar because this is exactly what happened here, January 6th. And Russia continues to interfere in, you know, domestic affairs of European countries and U.S. And if they are not stopped and decisively defeated and humiliated in Ukraine, we will see this spread out. So this is something we should have done last year. I mean, Ukraine shouldn't be, you know, now what, nine you know, close to 10 months into Russia's genocide campaign where we are now beginning to, you know, say, oh, let's provide, you know, defense missile systems.
0: In the dead of winter now, with the tactical situation as it is, which side is favored? I mean, the conventional wisdom, and you know, I'm saying this as a military person, is that the defender has the advantage. And in this case, ironically, the defender is Russia trying to beat back the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But I think the conventional wisdom is being turned on its head by Ukrainian tactics, by the utter collapse of Russian morale. What are you hearing from your Ukrainian family and friends about the reality on the ground with essentially trench warfare on the the front lines in the east?
1: Well, I mean, throughout Russia's latest campaign, and again, to remind your viewers, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. So now we're going into, what, uh, almost a nine-year war. But in their latest you know, invasion in February of this year, it was very evident that Russia was going to lose on the military field because Ukrainians, it is their land. They have no choice. They either fight to the last Ukrainian to secure their land and some kind of future for their children or grandchildren, or You know, they just give up and go under Russian rule, which we've seen what Russia has done, you know, inside of Russia. They've turned it basically into a big gulag that you can't even, you know, speak freely without being jailed or attempted poisonings or, you know, all the other atrocities they're committing inside of Russia. So nobody wants this. And as far as on the Russian side, they basically, you know, Russia pulled out mercenaries basically from the poorest villages across Russia. They went there for money. They have zero morale. There's zero logistics. You see the breakdown even of communications from the beginning. And now it's even worse between Russian military and their generals because they feel abandoned. They're left without food. And they- because uh, there was a video last month floating around, and I had to verify, and sure enough, it was true. One of the people in the mobilization center, she told the mobilized Russians, you know, that you have to, like, ask your wives and mothers for tampons to plug in bullet holes because we don't have first aid equipment. So, I mean, this is what the Russian military is dealing with that they have no food they have to buy their own you know first aid kits which a lot of them don't have their own uniforms their own sleeping bags and they don't even understand the purpose because this is one sick regime you know that basically has uh, you know their sights set on reinstating the soviet union so they don't have the high morale there's no you know like Idealism, like for instance, during the Soviet Union, where you know, uh, at least with the Politburo, they had you know, the idealism of communism. Here, it's just there's no idealistic values, there's nothing there, it's just a bunch of bandits who want to invade land and rob the land and kill the people on the land. And it's Ukraine and then Moldova, they've, uh, you know, hinted on Kazakhstan, they've threatened. I mean, they're constantly throwing out threats that, you know, uh, the countries are irrelevant. Even the Baltics. I mean, they've threatened the Baltics like, Oh, you know, these are fake countries set up. They belong to us. So I mean, you see the difference. Ukrainians will fight. And I told you even back then that, you know, with or without help from the West, whether it's, you know, fighting with advanced weapons or broomsticks, they will fight for their land. They have no choice. And the Russians, I mean, they're just, you know, we see what happened on the field.
0: Given all that, the total failure of Russia's military, the lack of a coherent, message around why this, air quotes, special operation is necessary. Why is Putin able to hold on to, well, I I think the reasons he's able to stay in power are pretty clear. He's a authoritarian, but why is he broadly popular, at least outside of the big cities, if the polls are to be believed? Well, the Poles,
1: I wouldn't believe. I think with Russians, they're apolitical. They don't have an opinion. They don't care any way, you know, either way, who's in power? And it's just, you know, it's just they're not a political society. They never have been not under tsarism, not under the Soviet Union and communism and not now. They become concerned only when it affects them. And we saw when, you know, Putin announced the mobilization, how you saw Russians, I mean, 700,000 fled Russia. And you saw, you know, the rest, I mean, it's humiliating for Russia that like they had more mobilization police, you know, coming to pick up people on the mobilization list and like running around in circles like in the courtyard in Moscow trying to capture them to, you know, be deployed. So, I mean, Putin is in power for now. I don't see him staying in power. I do see him being overthrown from inside. And it's not going to be by the Russian people. I personally, you know, have become more and more convinced that it's going to be through the security services because they're the ones who installed them. And honestly, you know... When you pull back and look at Russia, yes, he has the power. Yes, he controls everything. But at the same time, it's a Czechist country. And for the past century, it's been controlled by security services. And I laughed because I remember looking even at the past Soviet leaders. I think six of them died in office. And Gorbachev, basically, the Soviet Union collapsed under him. And there was uh, uh, one more, I, I think uh, he got pushed out. So I don't believe Putin will stay in power. But again, this is bigger than Putin, and this is the problem that I think I'm the most concerned about. This is the system, and it's not Putin's system. This is a system that has been there for the past century. Until that system is broken, you will see more leaders like Stalin and Putin and Brezhnev and others— be installed. And they are all cruel. And the cruelty comes from the top and goes to the bottom because you even see with military, it's not a military objective by Russia to go into Ukrainian homes, rape women, rape two-year-old children, cut their tongues out for refusing to say loyalty, you know, to Russia. it's That's not a military objective. This is coming from something darker and deeper inside the society. And until that system is broken, we're not going to see any change. And my final thing on this, I've been trying to sound the alarm and give a warning. The biggest mistake we made after the Soviet Union collapsed was saying, well, oh, wonderful, we won the Cold War. And flooding Russia with money in order to, you know, uh, set up their democracy. That money went to Russia's security services, to mafia and to politicians who were under the control of both mafia and and Russia's, uh, hey, quote, security services. So I hope that, you know, we realize that if Putin falls and his regime is overthrown, and you know, FSB decides to play nice and put some, you know, new leader in place that no one knows about, and push again for this fake democracy. That we don't fall for it, and immediately, you know, go back to business as usual and remove sanctions, and you know, and and welcome Russia back to the West because there really has to be repercussions and changes made inside Russia real changes. And that system needs to be broken before you can see anything, you know, Russia moving forward in any kind of democratic way.
0: How does that happen if you're indeed right and popular discontent is irrelevant? If it's the FSB, uh, which for our listeners is the inheritor of the KGB's legacy and that gave birth to Putin in in St. Petersburg, uh, if they at the very top, are calling the shots and running to society. How does a, a popular movement gain any traction? I mean, it's striking to me that Alexei Navalny, they put him in prison and you hear no more mention of him. I mean, their ability to to squash public dissent is extraordinary.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And honestly, to tell you the truth, look, I've wanted a free Russia for a very long time. But after the latest atrocities in Ukraine and the silence by the majority of the population, I think, you know, the policy from the West needs to be they need to figure it out for themselves. We need to make sure that Russia is contained. We need to set very clear rules that you step out of, you know, one inch out of your border, that there will be immediate consequences. And that's it. And they need to figure it out because you know what? There are so many countries who actually do want a democracy, like Romania, like, you know, and people in Kazakhstan, people in Moldova, but are mired with corruption. Our efforts would be better to secure the countries where the people actually want a democracy than to go and figure out, you know, Russia's centuries-old issue of not even understanding what democracy is. So I am for... We need to put very clear rules, contain them, and put very clear rules that, you know, you step outside of your borders, there are huge consequences, and they need to figure it out for themselves. And when they get tired of their leadership or their system or whatever, there will be a revolution and they will overthrow the system. But I don't think it's for us to be concerned. Our concern is to secure Europe, to secure United States Canada frankly the whole world and make sure that russia's you know active measures are cut off and that their invasions and you know imperialist uh, ambitions are not allowed to flourish
0: what are those consequences that you speak of and the calculation is fundamentally different with nuclear power let's take as a potential scenario a russian strike Very close to the border, but just over in Poland to uh, a staging area for, say, Patriot batteries going into Ukraine. I mean, clearly that's an overreach. That's Russia stepping outside of the boundaries we have drawn that the international community has drawn. But when you're dealing with a nuclear power, what are the consequences for something like that?
1: Well, we have to make sure that we devise very painful consequences. I don't know our nuclear protocol. I know that we do have, you know, certain levels. It's not if Russia launches a tactical nuke that we start firing on Moscow or St. Petersburg, that there are levels first we respond with conventional and then, you know, escalate in that way. But we have to make sure, look, at the end of the day, we have to make sure there are consequences, make them clear. The Pentagon is excellent, you know, at devising plans and, and issuing protocols of what can and can't be done, what happens if you do something like that where it goes into a NATO country. So, and we need to stick to these consequences. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is what needs to be done. And yes, Russia is a nuclear power, but you know what? Every analyst really needs to go and, you know, revisit their analysis over the past, you know, few decades, because they also made Russia the second largest military in the world and i laughed about it and i mean last year i was laughing i even said on my podcast i said how could russia's military be so powerful if they rob everything i mean literally out of a million dollar contract about 7 to 800,000 is going into people's pockets Thank God for corruption in this case. And 200000 actually goes to the contract. So my point is, we don't even know what's happening with Russia's nuclear arsenal. I'm sure if they're robbing the rest of the country, you would think that their defense ministry would at least make sure that, you know, they have an adequate military and that they have adequate weapons. You know, they've threatened us with these hypersonics. Where are these hypersonics? Russia has thrown everything in the kitchen into Ukraine, and we don't even see their advanced weapons that they put out, you know, their lovely propaganda videos over the past decade. So my point being is that, you know, we don't know what's happening with nuclear either. I mean, we don't know how much of it is working. Obviously, I think, for instance, they could probably have enough to use a tactical nuclear weapon. But at the same time, we don't know how effective it is. And I even, you know, like people here, like analysts in in January were like, you know, hiding under the bed in the United States. Like, oh, my God, Russia's going to send a nuclear missile to U.S. I'm like, if they shoot a nuclear missile at us, that thing will go back into Siberia. You see, based off of the corruption, that this is the status of what it is. So we need to have that, and we also have to have honestly rethink our international courts. And uh, stop prosecuting leaders and anyone, frankly, in the military, in any kind of chain of command, you know, a decade or two decades later and hold people responsible, make sure that they know there are consequences. So people, before even pushing a button, understand that, you know, they're pushing a button, that they will face repercussions. So I think we have a lot of things to do, but that would be my two recommendations.
0: Presidencies can be found anywhere, fine podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast
1: Network.
0: Last year, you took us inside the mind of Vladimir. Putin. And I have to believe that in the year that has passed, his mindset has to have shifted. I mean, he thought he would be in Kiev in a couple of days. I'm sure he was believing the people surrounding him. Where is his mind right now on Ukraine, on Zelensky, on his utter failure to achieve the objectives he set out in the beginning?
1: I'm sure that his mind is in survival mode because he understands how cruel the system is, again, and that he could be eliminated at any point. So I'm sure he is in, you know, some kind of survival and preparation mode of, of protecting himself. But look, Putin was fed lies. Again, this all stems to corruption. Putin, you know, cultivated three or more political parties inside of Ukraine over the past few decades. And honestly, it started before Putin. It started immediately after collapse. Russia controlled, or at least their security services controlled, you know, most of the media inside of Ukraine that fed Ukrainians propaganda for the past several few decades via the oligarchs. So Putin... Again, was fed lies from the oligarchs that he controlled inside of Ukraine, who told him that we will no problem, you know, because everybody wants to see the money flow continuing. Yes, yes, we have everything, you know, secure. We're going to, you know, grab the administration buildings and we're going to this and, you know, where we just need enough for military backup to quell the protest. And if you look, I mean, you're in military, you have a better understanding, way better than me. If you look at the amount of forces they even sent, you know, for Ukraine, Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe. I mean, I don't think 190,000 or 150,000 that cross the border into Ukraine is enough to take down a country that's the second largest in Europe. I think those forces were more to quell protest as the traitors inside that Putin has cultivated and Russian security services have cultivated as they take the country from within. So that plot failed. And now, I mean, he sees his military, you know, is a, basically a joke because of the corruption to the point that now they are arresting senior leaders for various bribery charges and corruption charges. So right now he sees that he's at the end of the rope. Uh, For me, I think he understands very clearly that he's not going down into the the Russian history books, which is the most important for any leader. I mean, they want to have a good place uh, in the Russian history books and statues after them. I mean, this is exactly what he's been uh, calculated everything. Ukraine, Belarus, and then he they had other plans to take Moldova and you know kind of start reinstating the Soviet Union. So he sees that's not going to happen. He sees that, if anything, it's how is Russian history going to write about him as a failure, as a leader who, you know, quote unquote, who had to grovel to Iran for weapons. I mean, Russia's second largest military, like there, Putin is at Iran's knees begging for weapons and of fighters. So I mean, you know, I personally think that, that he's at the end of the road. He understands. And now he's frankly just in survival mode to try to secure as much as he has.
0: Do you worry that that may lead him to act rashly or even irrationally when up until this point, everything seems to have been done, albeit in an information vacuum, but, you know, with this at least rational drive to conquer, so not to use nukes or something that would provoke the kind of regime-ending response, Uh, are we approaching a threshold where that consideration goes away?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, as far as with Putin, he has nothing to lose. He's, what, 71 now, so he's, you know, not concerned about his life, as far as if he were to go down, you know, using nuclear weapons. So I don't think there's anything holding him back because at least he would be framed as fighting the West. I do think that there are people around him who are concerned. And like I said, Russia's security services ultimately control the country. For, you know, before Putin, they controlled Yeltsin, they controlled Putin, they controlled Gorbachev. Well, in Gorbachev, we saw. The shift, again, over Afghanistan, that was, you know, a driving factor of the collapse of the Soviet Union because of the long Soviet-Afghanistan war and the heavy losses the Soviet Union took. But I um, do think that, you know, security services, see, they're at a dead end, too. I mean, Putin and... What now? Nine months has literally disrupted twenty years of operations for them. Their agents, for the most part, are hiding underground in Europe and U.S. They're being exposed. You know, U.S. law enforcement, FBI, Treasury is like pouring through every company, going through all the bank accounts, monitoring. You know any kind of uh, irregular activity. You have the same happening in Europe. Russia's disinformation, even though it still continues, I mean, at this point, it's laughable because even, like, you know, the average American who never even paid attention to Russia here or something, they're like, oh, this is, you know, fake. And, and like, even they're not falling for it, like, for instance, as what happened in 2016 and 17 and the disinformation we saw. So, I mean, even disinformation operations are weakening. UCRT has been shut down. Boutnik across Europe, I believe, in U.S., and those are huge spy hubs because, uh, first of all, you know, RT and Sputnik are an, a part of their intelligence services, and it's also cover for a lot of their intelligence agents because they, you know, use the cover just like in Soviet days as journalists. All the embassies are under scrutiny, and the most important, the oligarchs are locked away because oligarchs were able to, by Western politicians with their wonderful yacht parties and, you know, and, and all the decadence. Now they can't do this anymore. And even the European politicians who were cultivated and U.S. politicians by Russia over the decades, they can't freely you know, come out and express oh, their loyalty, you know, and for well, Russia. They still put out this information. But now it's just, you know, like people look at them like, OK, you, you uh, like work for the Kremlin. So with that said, I think it would be from within. I think, honestly, that security services, you know, they're at a dead end. And that's not even to mention the economy. I mean, what's happening inside Russia economically is getting worse by the month. So I think that whatever Putin wants to do, I still do think... There are rational players, particularly in security services, who want to preserve even some sort of framework of the system. So like after the Soviet Union, they you know can go under and then come back and strengthen the system again.
0: The last time we spoke, you described the oligarchs as almost completely dependent on Putin. And we had another guest who described the system as an inverted pyramid with Putin at that fulcrum point or that balance point at the bottom, and and that if he goes away, everything is lost. And that does not inspire confidence that there's going to be a a movement to get rid of him, even if it's inside the security services. Do you disagree with that? Do you think there is more to gain from a system that has grown dependent on him than there is to risk?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because if he goes, all the oligarchs go with him mm-hmm. and, you know, all the leadership in defense ministry and all the agencies – the state-owned uh, institutions. The system needs to be broken because the system ultimately, I do believe, is the security services. They put Putin in 98 or 99. They had a meeting and decided that Putin was going to be, you know, the one that they're going to put into power. If you remember back then, he came in. I mean, he literally, he couldn't speak. He looked like a thug, from, like a St. Petersburg thug. He wore oversized suits that the media used to laugh. Like, what did he borrow Yeltsin suits? You know, he was not polished. I think even uh, Berlusconi from Italy like sent his advisors to teach Putin how to, you know, be more polished and how to speak with the media and whatnot. Yes, over twenty years he has secured the system, but at the same time at the end of the day, the KGB or the FSB slash SBR, they still want to survive. And if he has taken them to a dead end, they will make sure that they can do everything they can to ultimately preserve the system. And there is no loyalty in Russia. Putin, his mentor, Anatoly Sobchak, who was the mayor of St. Petersburg, he is the one who, you know, helped make Putin. Putin, I mean, it was, you know, the longest uh, investigation, at least by opposition media outlets in the 90s. So Sobchak, when Putin, you know, was campaigning for election, Sobchak came for dinner. And then uh, Putin sent him off to campaign like in one of the regions that was further away from Moscow. And he died from a heart attack. And then his bodyguards died within days also from a heart attack. So there is no loyalty inside of Russia. Today, you know, if things are going well. The leaders and and everyone around Putin, you know, celebrating and thiefing and, and securing their own assets. When things start to go, they will turn on each other. And we're seeing it. I mean, we see what is happening between security services, even within the security services. You've seen, you know, FSB fighting with GRU. Prigozhin, who is head of Wagner Mercenaries, which is an intelligence arm of the defense ministry, fighting the defense ministry. Kadyrov, who is the head of Chechnya, that is loyal to Putin, criticizing Putin, criticizing Russia's defense minister, Shoigu. So you already see the like underground boiling of these tensions, and it's only going to spill over more. Russia is not going to win. I mean, we already see Russia will not win. Even if they use a nuclear weapon, this will do nothing. This would just be out of spike. It's not going to change anything on the military field. They're not going to suddenly gain advancements. The only thing they're going to do is make a certain portion of the land unusable and kill mass civilians and basically cross a threshold that will be even harder for the West to bring them back in, you know. Within the next several years or decade or whatever it is, so strategically, even if they do pull the trigger and use a nuclear weapon, it's not going to change anything and again, you're the military you know expert you know you you understand yourself that 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 wouldn't help Russia's military advance
0: well, a lot of the strategic planning of Russia just flies in the face of history and Let's look at the attacks on infrastructure as the latest example. Anyone who who studies that kind of thing from history in World War II is probably the best example. Those kinds of attacks, I'm thinking about the Blitz and the, uh, the Battle of Britain, they don't break the morale of a dedicated enemy, they actually strengthen it. And for someone who is supposedly as strategic and wily and cunning as Putin, it's just striking that he makes such obvious strategic mistakes.
1: Well, again, I don't think he's strategic. I don't think he's ever been strategic. He just took hold of all the security services. And I mean, he lives in his own world. Perfect example, when they decide to attack our elections in 2016, Putin comes from the mentality that once you put someone at the top, and again, this is from KGB's mentality, the way to gain control of the system or of anything is from the top. They put him into the top. He put his people into the top of all the, you know, state-owned entities and whatnot. So when Putin... um, when he attacked our elections in 2016, he has the mentality that he thought Trump was going to be, you know, going to the White House and collapse the whole system. And that's it. And that our system will collapse that, you know, with us, we are known to to have outrage. Uh, over issues, but then we're also known to quickly move on to the next thing, so you know a lot of people are are short sighted and short minded in u s here Putin didn't expect the resistance building against Trump that lasted. For years, he didn't expect that Trump wouldn't be able to control Department of Justice because it is such a bureaucratic machine that, you know, good luck changing a light bulb to get, you know, actually erasing an investigation or doing anything, you know, in favor of Russia or Trump. But when Putin planned it. He planned it as how it would be in Russia, because for him, if someone is a problem, he orders them to be killed. If someone is creating an issue in one of the state-owned entities, he orders a fake, you know, uh, corruption charges, has them jailed, removes them and puts someone else in. So for him, inside of Russia, because their system is so different, it is much easier and it is hard for someone who lives in that mentality to understand the mentality of, uh, for instance, the United States. So yes, did his plan short-term work in the United States? Did he, you know, Managed to successfully install Trump. Did he manage to cause chaos in United States and you know that we haven't seen for several decades and and deep divisions? Yes. Is this going to be long term? United States will survive because United States has gone through worse. We will survive, but when he was planning it, he envisioned something else. And that's it. And even with the media, Putin understands when he went into power, he took control of the media immediately because the way to control the public is through the media. When Trump launched his campaign, he immediately started attacking the media. Fake news, you know, regardless what it is, if it's something that is against him or against Russia or against one of the policies, it was fake news. Can Trump take over the media? No, this is United States. Good luck taking over, you know, the media. He wasn't successful. Maybe uh, some of the media outlets, you know, favored him, but he wasn't successful to take control of the full media and the full information space. So, I mean, on paper, what looks good on paper inside of Russia is not practically what happens when it's actually being played out.
0: There's this undercurrent of admiration, within the Republican Party, for Putin, for Russia. Occasionally, it boils to the surface, as when Ted Cruz admired that old Russian military recruiting video. It has been subdued, but do you worry that that sentiment, that strain of admiration for authoritarianism might present a real danger uh, should the the Republicans regain the White House. Uh, wh- how worried should we be about that?
1: I think we should be worried, extremely worried. I'm definitely a little more calm, you know, since midterms. But I think we should be worried because, again, America will survive this. But we should not have one full political party that is okay with authoritarianism. And regardless, even though you, we've seen a, you know, less vocal about disrupting our system. Over the past year, and now they're actually, you know, suddenly like in, in this bow outrage that Trump attacked the Constitution, which he's been doing since day one. He doesn't even know what a Constitution is, but Trump has authoritarian tendencies. I think we should be very worried. As far as not that we should panic, that we should continue being engaged in our democracy. We should continue making sure that we pick good candidates, that we are involved in local elections, that it's not just picking the White House, that we see the importance of the state houses. We see the importance, my goodness, of the school boards. You know, who thought 10 years ago that, you know, making sure that you have a good school board is going to make a big difference in our democracy, and we see it now. So I think we'll ever fall into authoritarianism. Now, if we continue being active and engaged in making sure that our democracy is for the people and by the people and that we are doing everything to secure our democracy— I don't think we'll ever see authoritarianism. But we do need to figure out this undercurrent, why it is there. And again, a lot of it has to do with Russia, because this really started in 2007. Because when Obama was running for election and gaining strength, Russians took notice of the divisions on social media over Obama, the racism towards Obama. When Obama won, I mean, you had Americans inside of America burning effigies of Obama. I haven't seen scenes like this, you know, since since Iraq when Iraqis were burning books, you know. That's when the Russians got active in our society. This is when they sent their advisors to start moving in and making inroads with the Republican Party. This was around 2007, 2008. Oath keepers, three percenters. Progosian, who's head of you know, Wagner mercenaries, is also at the same time, you know, with running a trope farm, which was a huge disinformation operation to push, you know, divisive messaging and disinformation and fake news and everything that you could think of. Pragossians entities were assisting in, I believe, 2012, helping push uh, and amplify the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters. So this is something that we need to make sure that we need to cut all foreign actors out, and that's for our intelligence agencies to secure our information space. And as people, we need to be engaged and continue just, you know, because Biden has a White House, or even if we win the White House in 2024, it doesn't mean things are all well. And we took that as Americans for granted until it took 2016, where, you know, I took it for granted. I'm like, I'm in America. This is the safest country in the world. When I saw what was happening, you know, over the past several years, I'm like, whoa, like, my God, did I get a wake up call? How important it is that we have to focus and be engaged in our own democracy.
0: Well, we're going to have to end it there. Olga, thank you so much as always. And thank you for your vigilance on this. I appreciate all you do. Thank you. Thanks again to Olga for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at OlgaNYC1211. And make sure to check out her podcast, Kremlin File. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rule is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
2: History is complicated. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
1: This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.